If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter number 18. John chapter number 18. For those who were here last week, you might say, but pastor, I thought you said that this series is not primarily based on the Bible. Well, it's not because we're talking about proofs outside of the Bible that show us why the Bible, why the Bible should be an authority, and we'll get there. But I do want to direct your attention to the Word. Uh, we will have several scriptures we will share this morning. Go ahead and take out your worship guide that you should have received on your way in, and you can follow along with the message today. Well, welcome to week two of our series called Believable, How Christianity is Both Rational and Wonderful. Uh, just a couple of things I want to mention before we get into the message. Uh, today's message is entitled, Can We Handle the Truth? We're going to look at what is truth, can the truth be known, and why does that matter? But before we get into that message, uh, I wanted to share a couple of reminders. Number one, we have a small group that meets immediately after this service in room 143. That's led by myself and my lovely wife. And I hear that there's banana nut bread, just saying, there's banana nut bread in our small group today. Not trying to meddle with other small group leaders and draw people into our class. But uh, anyway, we just have about a 30-minute discussion-based follow-up from each message. And so we've prepared a couple of questions to talk about today. Had a great first week last week. And you can join up with this anytime. You don't have to commit to the whole uh, 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 10 weeks. If you just want to jump in on, on certain Sundays, you can certainly do that. But had a great discussion last week as we started. The second thing I want to mention to you is remind you about the way that you can email questions in. And guys, if you'll throw this screen up on live stream just so that folks who are watching by way of live stream can also see this. Um, email any questions that, that you have to fairviewpastorbrian at gmail.com and make sure to put in the subject line, Believable Series. I would love to uh, try to answer questions that you have as we go through this series together. And then the final reminder is make sure you avail yourself of the Believable Resource Table. We've already had two or three people uh, purchase books. Each book on the table is a cost of $10. If you are a guest, we want that the first book that you receive to be our gift to you. And so if you're a guest and you'd like to pick up one of those and you're uh, someone who is seeking for truth and seeking for answers, then that table is there for you and you can pick up the first book on us and then every book after that would be $10. So if you have any questions about that, see myself, see Pastor Don, uh, and we'll try to get you helped out with that, or a greeter can also help you with that. All right, well, today we're going to look at week two, Can We Handle the Truth? And I'm not going to review every week that we're in this series, but I do want to do just a very brief review uh, in case you did miss last week to show you where we're going this week. And so last week we basically said this, uh, this was our theme. It's important for us to examine the components that have led to our faith. And so in introducing the sermon last week, we talked about the importance of why we need answers and why we need to be able to give answers um, to those who have questions. And we talked about how this series was for three groups of people. The authentic seeker, someone who is genuinely searching for answers. Number two, the underground skeptic, maybe someone who's grown up in church who recently has had their faith uh, seriously questioned or rattled. And then thirdly, we talked about the unprepared believer. And the reality is all of us in this room can be better prepared, either with more knowledge or with more compassion and humility as we seek to communicate the truth to the world around us. And so it's, it's only in understanding better these components that build up our faith or that make up our faith that we can have a stronger faith and more humble interactions with others. 
We said at the end of our sermon last week, number one, that if our answers aren't backed by good reasons, then we have shallow answers. Gone are the days when we can just say, well, I believe what I believe because my mom and daddy taught me to believe that, or my pastor says. Uh, We need to have good reasons behind why we believe the things that we do so that we don't have shallow answers. Now, I'll say this. You can have the greatest reasons in all the world, and that's still not going to convince some folks. I shared this quote this week on Facebook. Uh, You might not be able to read that. It might be too small, but I'll read it for you real quick. Uh, Professor George Wald, a Nobel Prize winning biologist, said this. There are only two possibilities as to how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution. The other is a supernatural creative act of God. There is no third possibility. You know, either God created the universe or nothing created the universe is basically what he's saying. Spontaneous generation that life arose from non-living matter was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur and others. That leaves us with only one possible conclusion, that life arose as a creative act of God. But notice what this atheist professor said. He said, I will not accept that philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. I therefore choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible, spontaneous generation arising to evolution. Now, you can have the best reasons in the world, and that's still not going to convince some. Does that make sense? I think so. I think we get that. Uh, You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And so if our answers aren't backed by good reasons, then we have shallow answers. But number two, we said if our answers aren't backed by compassion and humility, then we have hollow answers. And what I see today is I see the atheist way over here getting very mocking and using all kinds of names and, and all kinds of ad hominem attacks in their debates. And they get very angry and rude. And then I see the other side getting angry and rude. How unfortunate. And so I hope that this series will both give us good reasons, but I also hope that it will give us a better opportunity for compassion and humility, understanding that not every atheist um, is like this professor was, willingly one, but they have genuine questions. And so how do we get to sit down with people and have genuine conversations, meaningful conversations, right? Um, I said this last week, we can have what we think is the most convincing evidence for the existence of God, but if we are arrogant or abrasive in our approach, we don't need to be surprised when we never have meaningful conversation with someone who believes differently. And so this is just a little bit of a review for us as we think about where we're heading in this series. I did mention that this series is really composed of two parts. Number one, over the next few weeks, up until March 10th, we're going to make a case for theism. What is theism? It's a basic belief in a God. And we're not even saying that that, in in, in the case for theism, we're not even saying that that is the Christian God of the Bible yet. So what we're saying in theism, and this is where in the first part of the series, there's not going to be a ton of scripture per se, but we're going to talk about arguments outside of scripture that point to why we should look to scripture. Because if you are an atheist or a skeptic, then you don't see the Bible as your authority for life. And, And I understand that. I, as a presuppositional Christian, do believe that the Bible is my authority for life and that it's the revelation of the God of the universe. And so the case for theism and then the case for Christianity in the second half of the series. Now, this is important. And the reason this is important is because if you listen to debates between atheists and Christians online or atheists and theists online, what you'll hear is category mistakes in the arguments. And so what an atheist will do is they'll say, 
here's the problem. You've got 350 denominations within Christianity, so how can there be a God? Do you see what they just did? They made a category mistake, and they said, because there's this question over here in Christianity, therefore theism must be untrue. And what they're doing is they're confusing the issue, and they're creating a category dilemma that's really not there. Um, yes, there are a lot of denominations, and that question can be answered, but just because that's an issue doesn't mean that there's not a God that exists. And so that's where we're going in this series. We're making a case for theism and then a case for Christianity. And today's message is, can we handle the truth? What is truth? Can the truth be known? Why does it matter? Well, in the movie, A Few Good Men, Tom Cruise plays a Navy lawyer who questions a Marine colonel played by Jack Nicholson. I'm not sure if you've seen the movie. I think I've, I don't know if I've ever seen the whole movie, but I've seen this clip that I'm about to tell you about. Um, it's the dramatic courtroom scene where Cruz is cross-examining Jack Nicholson, the Marine colonel, and Cruz accuses Nicholson of being complicit in the murder of one of his men. Cruz says, Colonel, did you order the code red? The judge says, you don't have to answer that question. Nicholson says, I'll answer the question. You want answers? Cruz says, I think I'm entitled to them. Nicholson says, you want answers? Cruz says, I want the truth. And Nicholson then makes his famous response. Say it with me if you know it. You can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. You know, Nicholson said that to Cruz in that movie, but he might as well have been yelling at all of America when he said that. You can't handle the truth. Isn't it amazing that on one hand, we demand truth in almost every area of our life? Let's just think about some areas where we demand truth. Number one, we demand truth in our families, with our spouses. We demand, we expect that our spouse is truthful with us. We expect that our kids tell the truth. Um, we expect truth from our doctors. We want our doctors to give us an accurate diagnosis. By the way, how many of you are tired of doctors practicing medicine? Wouldn't it be great if they could? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we, we, we demand honesty there. We demand truth in our prescription medications. We don't want the pharmacist to mess up and tell us that we're taking one thing when actually we're taking another thing. We demand truth with our financial advisors. I don't think anybody would sign up to have Bernie Madoff be their financial advisor right after the sermon this morning, correct? We demand truth with our money. We demand truth in the court system. We want our courts to make sure they convict the right person truthfully. We expect truth from our employers. We want them to tell us the truth and pay us fairly. We expect truth from airlines. We want those planes to be safe, truly safe planes, and we want truly sober pilots. We also expect the truth to be told when we pick up a reference book or read a news article, or watch a news story. How many of us have been lied to by fake news, right? We want the truth from advertisers. We want the truth from teachers, and we demand truth in our politicians. We assume that road signs are telling us the truth. We assume that medicine bottles are telling us the truth. And we want to make sure that food labels tell us the truth. And so we demand truth in almost every facet of life. Money, health, safety, and relationships. But yet, when it comes to morality and religion, we say, oh, well, you've got your truth, and I've got my truth. 
what's true for you isn't true for me. Or, or even worse, there is no truth in morality. There is no truth in religion. Or everybody has a piece of the truth. Can't we all just get along? Isn't it amazing that we want truth in all of these areas of life? And when it comes to really what could be argued is the two most important areas of our life, the world says, well, you can't know the truth, can you? In fact, many downright reject the idea that any religion, knowledge about God, can ultimately be true. Isn't this a glaring contradiction? Why do we demand truth in everything but morality and religion? I think Winston Churchill said it well. He said, men stumble over the truth from time to time, but most pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened. So, today we're going to talk about three questions. Number one, what is truth? Number two, how can truth be known? And number three, then, why does it matter? First of all, what is truth? You're there in John chapter 18, and I want to point to you a fascinating interchange between Jesus and Pilate. It says in John chapter 18, verse 38, Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? Pilate was asking that question 2,000 years ago. There's no new questions only maybe new ways of saying it. But Pilate said, what is truth? Jesus had just gotten done saying in verse 37 that he was there to testify of the truth. And Pilate responds with this question, what is truth? And it says, when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and he saith unto them, I find no fault in Jesus. So what is truth based on this verse? Well, we see that what truth is, is truth is telling it like it is. If you had to give a simple definition of truth, it is telling it like it is. Truth is declaring, uh, uh, truth is telling it like it is. It is, it is a, a statement about reality. What Pilate was doing here, notice in this verse, Pilate asks the question, what is truth? But then Pilate goes out and he makes a truth claim, which is actually true, by the way. He says, what is truth? But then he goes out and he says, I find no fault in him at all. Jesus is innocent. And that was a truth about Jesus. And so it's funny that Pilate both asked the question at the beginning of the verse and in in the next breath, he affirmed that there is truth in this world. So what is truth? Truth is that which corresponds to its object. It's a statement about reality. Truth is absolute. It is not relative. A truth is true if it is something that is true for all persons, at all times, in all places. Truth is a statement about reality, a statement which corresponds with its object. Let me give you an example of a truth statement. This guy is Brian McLaughlin. That guy. Even though I was a lot younger back then, I'm still Brian McLaughlin. That's a simple truth claim. In fact, this truth claim is one of our laws of logic that we're going to look at today called the law of identity. We'll get there. But this is a simple statement about truth which which corresponds to its object. I would be lying to you if I got up here and I said, I am Donald Trump or I am Barack Obama or I am the tooth fairy. Uh, That would be an, an, an untrue statement, right? And so this is based, I mean, you're like, why are we talking? Don't worry, we're going to get there. I'm going to tell you why we have to start here. It's amazing why we have to start here. But, but the truth is, truth is that which corresponds to its referent or its object. Let me give to you some truth about truth. 
<laughs> Here we go. Ready? Here's some notes for you to take down in your outline. The truth about truth. Number one, truth is discovered, not created. Truth is discovered, not created or invented. What do I mean? Isaac Newton did not create or invent the truth of gravity. He discovered the truth of gravity. So truth is discovered. It is not created. Newton simply discovered the truth that was already there. Number two, not only is truth discovered and not invented. Number two, truth is transcultural. Truth is transcultural. What do I mean by that? I mean that if something is true, it is true for all people, in all places, at all times. An example of that would be 2 plus 2 equals what? 4. If you go anywhere on the planet, 2 plus 2, well, maybe not, in, maybe not on Capitol Hill, but 2 plus 2 equals 4 everywhere else, okay? Uh, truth is transcultural. In fact, um, the language of mathematics is the universal language, the SETI project, which has been searching for extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial intelligence for many decades now. They say that proof of ET life, proof of extraterrestrial intelligent life, will be a string of prime numbers in sequence. And they're right, because mathematics is the language of the entire universe. So truth, on some level, is transcultural. It spans every nation, every tongue, every kindred, every tribe, truth is transcultural. The third truth about truth is truth is unchanging. Truth is unchanging. Even though our beliefs about truth might change, for instance, um, uh, hundreds of years ago, people believed that the earth was flat. And I know I'm wading into a can of worms here because this seems to be a big controversy on, on, on YouTube, you know. The earth is flat and the earth is round. Well, uh, for a long time, people believed that the earth was flat instead of round. But truth is unchanging. The earth didn't change its shape when people changed their belief about whether the earth was round or flat. All right? So truth is unchanging, which leads us to our next one, and that is beliefs cannot change a truth. Beliefs, no matter how sincerely we might believe them or not believe in something, cannot change the truth of what we're talking about. For example, you could go up to a tall building in New York City and you can say, I strongly believe that the truth about gravity no longer exists and you can proceed to jump. Tell me, doesn't matter how sincere you are in that belief, are you still going to go, yeah, you're still going to fall. Your, your, your belief about truth doesn't change the reality of what the truth is is. Number five, truth is not affected by the attitude of the one proclaiming it. Um, this is an important one in our day. Just because someone is arrogant and they're a jerk doesn't make the truth that he professes false. And just because, nor does someone who is humble and nice, make the error that they are professing true. So, just because the attitude might be wrong or right doesn't mean you judge the truth statement by the attitude. And that's important for us to keep in perspective today. And then finally, all truth is absolute truth. Any truth worth knowing is absolute truth, even truths that appear to be relative. You know, that's the big argument today, that all truth is relative. And we're going to talk about how that's a self-defeating argument based on the laws of logic, because that's how we even know truth. 
but all truth is absolute truth. Even truths that appear to be relative are actually absolute. For example, um, I, Brian McLaughlin, felt cold on February the 8th of 2019. You might say, whoa, that was just a couple days ago. What happened? Our heater broke in our house, and it got really cold, like down to 50s in our house overnight. And so on February the 8th at uh, 10.30 p.m. at night, I felt cold. Some people might say that's a relative truth. No, it's not. At that moment in time, at that specific instance, I felt cold, and that was true for all people at all times and all places, even though someone over in Africa might have felt warm. It's not a relative truth. That's actually an absolute truth because it was true at all times, in all places, for all people, that at that moment on that day, I felt cold. And so just a quick run through these. In fact, you might say, Pastor, you really ran through those quick. Eh, I don't have time to stop. But let me encourage you to go to a couple of resources on our table if you want to dig deeper into this. If you're even fascinated a little bit by this and by really understanding the truth about truth and how uh, truth is absolute, check out I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Chapters 1 and 2 of that book will explain a lot more to you. And then chapter 1 of The Reason for God by Tim Keller will answer some of those questions in this area of truth. Because here's what happens. When you tell people and when you state and make the assertion that there is absolute truth, the moment we make that statement, here comes the objections. And so here's all the objections to truth. People say things like, there is no such thing as truth. You can't know truth. All truth is relative. There are no absolute truths. It's true for you, but it's not true for me. No one has the truth. There's no truth in religion, only science. You should doubt everything. And oh yeah, by the way, you ought not judge. How many of you have ever heard any of these objections to truth? Raise your hand if you've heard these. Yeah, we hear them on TV. They go unchallenged all the time in debates. And so these are the common objections to truth. We're going to come back to this list here in just a little bit when we talk about the laws of logic and how truth can even be known. So what is truth? Truth is a simple statement about reality. It's that which corresponds to its object. An example would be, I am Brian McLaughlin. That doesn't change. I'm gonna always be that. That is my identity, all right? So what is truth? Truth is a simple statement about reality. It's a simple premise that is obvious based on observance and induction, all right? Number two, then, how can we know the truth? So we've looked a little bit at what is truth, and you can dig deeper into these resources to help you better understand the arguments of, of what is truth. But then how do we know truth? How can truth be known? And again, chapters 1 and 2 of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist and chapter 1 of The Reason for God will help you in this question, how can truth be known? Now, again, let me remind you that we do not create truth. We discover truth. And how do we discover truth? We discover it through the basic laws of logic in the human mind. This is where it gets fun. All right, are you ready? So the laws of logic are what help us to discover anything worth knowing. What do I mean? Well, the basic, the three basic laws of human logic were first discovered, not created, not invented, they were first discovered by a man by the name of Aristotle. He lived about 300 years before the time of Christ. He was an ancient Greek philosopher. And he discovered these basic laws of logic that originate from minds. 
Now, these laws of human logic are fascinating because they are not physical properties. They are abstract and conceptual. They are born out of minds. These laws are not made of atoms. Therefore, you cannot see these laws, taste these laws, touch these laws, hear these laws, or smell these laws with the five physical senses. But they are self-evident to every human mind that has ever had a rational thought of human reason. What are these laws? Let me put them up there. These laws are basic to human reasoning, and I'll, I'll share this as well. These laws are basic to human reasoning and thinking. These laws of logic are to our thinking what our eyes are to our seeing. So what are these laws of logic that we use every day, thousands of times a day, without even realizing it? Well, here they are. Number one, I've already mentioned one, the law of identity. The law of identity. The way that you would formulate the law of identity in a logical debate and, 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 and talking about this with somebody is to say, A equals A. This guy is Brian McLaughlin. A equals A. Now, how many of you would understand that if, if you have two people that are about to enter into a discussion and they don't agree that A equals A, you're not going to get far anywhere else in a discussion with them? How many of you are like, yeah, yeah, pastor, I have those kinds of discussions all the time with my spouse. Listen, this is not marriage counseling right now, okay? But A equals A. So the law of identity says A equals A. Now, you're like, how does this apply to us? Hello, the law of identity today has been totally ejected from reason. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. So the law of identity is basically uh, what, um, it, this is what philosophers call a tautology. What is a tautology? It is a formula or assertion that is true in every possible interpretation. For instance, in that photo that I showed you of me back 10 or 12 years ago, that was still me. In every single interpretation of how I could interpret it, that was always going to be me. So A equals A, the law of identity, which is a basic premise or statement about truth. These are what we call self-evident realities. In fact, our declaration of independence is built on tautologies. They assume, they premise that all men are what? Created equal. Do you hear that both, there's a tautology of the fact that we're equal, but there's also a tautology in that statement that we're created, right from the declaration of independence. So that would be an example of the law of identity, a statement of reality. Number two, then, from the law of identity, then we get the law of non-contradiction. For instance, if I had thrown up on the screen a picture of our current president or a former president or whoever and said, that guy is Brian McLaughlin, you would have then the law of non-contradiction kick in, which says A and non-A cannot be the same. That's what the law of non-contradiction states. Um, A cannot be both A and non-A at the same time in the same way and in the same sense. Contradictory statements cannot both be true in the same sense and at the same time. And examples of this would be like what we talked about earlier. You cannot say that the earth is both flat and round in the same time, at the same sense. They can't both be true. Um, let me illustrate this way. If you were to go on a walk downtown Decatur and you were to see a couple that you know and you were to go up to them and it's obvious the wife is expecting you to say, oh, it, it looks like you're expecting. And the husband says no and the wife says yes. 
Are you going to walk away from that conversation saying, oh, thank you for clearing it up. I understand now. No, you're going to say it can't be both pregnant and non-pregnant at the same time. One of you's wrong. That's the law of non-contradiction coming into play. How do you discover truth? You discover truth through the law of identity, being able to look at something and say A equals A. And then secondly, the law of non-contradiction kicks in and you're able to say, okay, this is true and this is not true. This is true, this is false. This, this corresponds to its object, this does not. And so we use these, these laws every day. They're, they're so common, we don't even see them at work. So when you get to a statement, an assertion, such as God exists, that can't both be true and untrue. It either has to be true or it has to be false. There's no middle ground, which brings us to the third law of logic, and that is the law of excluded middle. The law of excluded middle says a statement is either true or false. There is no middle position. And so when a theist says God exists, that's a statement that they're making about reality. They're either right or they're wrong. There is no middle position. Now, I understand, if you are someone who studied logic and philosophy, I understand that when I make the statement as a theist that God exists, that's simply an assertion. You might want to write this down. An assertion is simply you making a statement that you assume to be true. An argument is where you take that assertion and back it up with good reason. And so over the next few weeks, I'm going to take the assertion that God exists based on the fact that the laws of logic exist, And I'm going to assert that God exists, but I'm going to give you hopefully good reasons to make the argument for why I believe that a God exists. And so when you're talking with someone who says, okay, I'm an atheist, where you have to start is say, okay, are we going to agree on the basic laws of logic? Because if we do not agree there, then we're going to get into talking circles around each other, talking past each other, because we're going to have differing Uh, definitions of truth you know we're going to get into the discussion of well it depends on what the word is is do you see do you see how it can become just a lot of word salad if we don't have okay these are basic laws that we identify that we agree with we cannot think without the laws of logic in fact we have never had an intelligent rational conversation without using these laws. One of my favorite examples of the law of non-contradiction is Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. Duck season, wabbit season. Isn't that great? They're both trying to contradict each other and then of course Bugs changes the, changes the wording and, he's, and then he starts arguing for rabbit season and then Daffy gets shot in the head. Anyway, I love that illustration of the law of non-contradiction uh, being, being, being played out. The law of non-contradiction And so out of these three laws, all of them are are, are important, but in the middle sits this law of non-contradiction. And this is the one we want to look at for just a moment. Because as I mentioned to you earlier, these objections to truth immediately come up when you say there is absolute truth. Ah, there's no such thing as truth. You can't know the truth. All truth is relative and on down the list. Well, as I said, the law of non-contradiction is really undeniable. Why? Because in order to deny the law of non-contradiction you're actually affirming the law of non-contradiction. Right? Everybody follow with that? It'd be like, um, 
you saying that, uh, uh, well, anyway, I'm going to get off point here. So let's look at these truth statements, and I'll show you how this law... So what you can do when you hear these objections is to take the law of non-contradiction and use it to show how these statements are self-defeating. Let me explain. Number one, if someone says there is no such thing as truth, how would we respond? What question would you respond with when someone makes that statement? Ask, is that true? Right? If someone wants to say, oh, well, how can you know the truth? There is no such thing as truth. Ask, is that true? Is the question, is the statement you're making, is that true? Do you see how that's self-defeating? Do you see how that does not, the, the statement, there is no such thing as truth, how that doesn't hold up underneath its own scrutiny? The second law, or, or the, 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 the second objection to the second law of logic, people will say, you can't know the truth. How would you respond? How do you know that's true? How do you know that's true? Number three, all truth is relative. How would you respond? Is that a relative truth? And if so, then it's not true for me. All truth is relative. Then they'll say there are no absolute truths. Is that absolutely true? How does that hold up underneath its own scrutiny? You see, the law of non-contradiction is irrefutable. Number five, it's true for you, but not for me. Is that true for everybody? Number six, no one has the truth. Then how do you know you have the truth? How do you know you have the truth? If no one has the truth, then you don't have it either when making this assertion. Number seven, there is no truth in religion, only science. Now, in this one, it's interesting because what they mean by science is different than what you and I mean by science. This is when you get into the word salad. See, science is awesome. Scientism is a commitment to a philosophy that says only things in science, only science can help us know things. Science is great. Scientism is a philosophical commitment to one bias and one bias only. And so when someone says that there is no truth in religion, only science, you need to ask, ask them, is that a scientific truth? How many experiments did you run to come to that conclusion? And then number eight, you should doubt everything. How would you respond to that one? Should I doubt that? If I should doubt everything, why shouldn't I doubt that? And then finally, you ought not judge. You ought not judge. Do you catch it? Do you catch the word in the statement that shows you that that is a judgment? It's the word ought. So do you see how if you take these laws of logic, the law of identity, the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle, those three laws are basic for us knowing anything about what we call reality. And so we take these laws of logic along with premises. What are premises? They are assertions of what we believe is true based on observation and inductive and deductive reasoning. And we come away with these laws and this framework which tell us that this is how we know truth. And these things matter. Oh, they matter so much. In fact, 
in this book, Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. In fact, this is a very famous detective. He's been on 48 Hours Mysteries and, and uh, several other programs. Um, he, was, he, he used to be an atheist. And he wrote this about the laws of logic in his book. He said this about the laws of logic. He said, as an atheist, I would have been the first to describe myself as rational. In fact, I saw myself as far more reasonable than many of the Christians that I knew, but I was basing my rationality on my ability to understand and employ the laws of logic. How could I account, though, for these transcendent laws without the existence of a transcendent lawgiver? I was out in my neighborhood yesterday walking. And rationality says that when I took the photo of this law, stop. In fact, this, this, this sign gets ran a lot in our neighborhood. I watch cars just fly right through it. But regardless of whether you acknowledge the law or not, the law is there. And if you happen to disregard that law at a certain time when a police officer is sitting there, you'll be reminded of the law. What's rational to infer by that sign? That, there, that that law came from a mind. It came from a lawgiver. It came from a lawmaker. And so when we look at the laws of logic, the law of identity, the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle, now some atheists will try to say, oh, well, these are just descriptive laws. They're not prescriptive. No, it's actually both and here which is fascinating. In this situation, with, with the basic laws of logic, they are both describing how any thought occurs and they're also prescribing how every thought occurs. The law of excluded middle, the law of non-contradiction, and the law of identity. And so what can we infer? We can infer that these basic laws of logic come from a divine mind. In fact, these laws of logic aren't just existing here on planet Earth. When Neil Armstrong took the first step on the moon, he didn't have to wonder about the laws of logic still working. These, law, these laws would work anywhere in the known universe because these laws ultimately come from a divine mind. You and I, we were created in the image of that divine mind, and we have the ability to reason and think. And so, how do we know truth? You know anything that is true through those basic laws of logic. Now, why does this matter? That's what you've been waiting for, right? All right, pastor, talked about what truth is, kind of basic. How do we know it? Oh, that's interesting, the laws of logic. Okay, yeah, yeah. But why does this matter? Well, I love what one college professor asked to their students every semester before they started their class. They asked this question. They said, what is the greatest problem in America today? Is it ignorance or is it apathy? And they got varying responses until one student said this, I don't know and I don't care. Isn't it true that what we find in America today is both a willing ignorance and an apathy says, who cares, whatever. <laughs> why do we start here? In making this case for theism over the next several weeks, why do we start here with basic truth? 
Because as you're building a case for Christianity from the foundations up, you have to start with how we even know what truth is, make a case for theism, and then make the case for Christianity from the Word of God. Why do we start with something so basic? Because unfortunately today, you have to start with and state the obvious. Because in reality, if two individuals cannot agree on this basic reality, then there is no reason going further. No reason going further in the conversation because at least one of us has already ejected reason from the discussion before we even begin. And this is why most of the debates that you watch on YouTube are just people talking circles around each other, no one listening to each other, because we haven't even agreed on the basics of fundamental reality, the laws of logic. How do I know this? We don't even know what our biological gender is today. We don't even know the law of identity. We can't even agree on a boy is a boy, a girl is a girl. We have people marrying their animals. We even have people marrying Ferris wheels. Google it. I'm not making it up. We have people who don't know which bathroom they should go to. We, have, we are letting five-year-olds decide what gender they are. And oh yeah, Facebook will give you 51 choices now when you, make a, when you set up your profile. We have boys winning girls wrestling tournaments. We have grown men dressing up in latex dog suits thinking they're dogs. We, we even, what's so funny is we had a lady who claimed for decades that she was African-American. And then they found out she has no African-American blood. I guess she kept a good tan. And, and, and she, she thought she was, she claimed this for years. And then it's found out she was lying. And, and, and when they confronted her on it, she said, well, I identified as that. So why do we start here? Isn't it obvious? Because unless we can agree on the basic laws of logic, we're not going to get far in the conversation. We're coming from two epistemological, and that, that word simply just means how you think you know what you think you know and how you arrived at those conclusions. We're coming from two epistemological worldviews that are completely different. How do we break through that blindness? So why does this matter? Why is it important? Because number one, truth and morality matters. It matters. This is such an amazing thing to me that folks who claim that there is no God then still try to claim that morality matters. In one sense, they get morally outraged that there's these tough verses in the Bible that talk about men, uh, or about women and children getting killed, but then in the next sentence, they're defending children getting ripped out of a womb. How does that logically connect and make sense? So see, truth and morality does matter. In fact, every person who's ever lived affirms some kind of morality. In fact, we can say that truth and morality doesn't matter, but... They really don't believe that when someone starts to treat them immorally. You might claim that lying doesn't matter, that you being untruthful doesn't matter. But the moment someone lies to you about your money, you're going to care. Like I said, you wouldn't like it if Bernie Madoff was your financial advisor. So truth and morality matters. 
Why does this matter? Number two, because truth and ultimate reality matters. Ultimate reality, what are we talking about? The knowledge of God that there is something else besides what we perceive right now with our physical, physical senses. Truth and ultimate reality matters. And the reason that this matters is because you have world religions that are making competing truth claims. And so the law of non-contradiction says that this religion over here making a truth claim about the afterlife cannot be, they can't be, be right. And this uh, religion over here making an opposite truth claim about the afterlife, they can't both be true. But we say, well, coexist. Coexist is pluralism which says that everybody has some part of the truth. And the illustration that they use in that is the story of the elephant and the six blind men. How many of you have ever heard the story, right? There's this elephant in the room, which is supposed to represent God. And, a per, and the person telling the story says that there's these six blind men. One blind person has a hold of the elephant's truck, so, trunk, so he assumes that, that, that the elephant is like a rope. Another uh, blind man has a hold of the elephant's leg. He assumes that elephants are like trees. Another blind man is leaning against the elephant's side. He assumes that elephants are like a wall. And this illustration is told to somehow illustrate that all the world religions are blind. We're all holding a little piece of God, but we're all ultimately going to be right. That's called religious pluralism. The problem with that illustration is there's a person telling the story who assumes that he sees perfectly. The person telling the story is saying, I see it perfectly. I'm not blind. So the illustration breaks down. So truth and ultimate reality matters. See, we have this faulty view of tolerance today. In our culture today, we think that uh, we, we, we no longer think that tolerance means to put up with something that you believe to be false. That's what tolerance used to mean. Today, tolerance now means that you're supposed to accept and affirm every belief as true. And folks, based on the laws of logic, that just does not make sense. And so truth and morality matters. This is a huge issue for us today. Truth and ultimate reality matters. And why does it matter? Because ultimately truth leads, I believe, to a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is at the center of all ultimate reality and by the end of these nine weeks, I hope that you'll see that. I hope that you'll see why I'm making that statement. The Bible refers to him as the Alpha and the Omega. By him, all things consist. He is the preeminent one. Jesus said, I am that I am. Talk about the ultimate tautology, the ultimate statement of identity, the law of identity. Jesus would go on to say to Pilate, he said in that verse before Pilate asked the question, what is truth? Jesus says, to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus said, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so, truth, what is it? 
How do we know it? Why does it matter? It is fundamental from wherever we go from this point forward that we start with truth. How do we know it? Through the basic laws of logic, the law of identity, the law of non-contradiction, and the law of excluded middle. Now, this is the beginning point. Next week, we're going to look at the existence of God, part one. We're going to be looking at two arguments for the existence of God, the cosmological argument and the teleological argument, and talking about how that impacts us and how we communicate that and live that out. But can I just say this? Augustine said, and it's there in your notes, it's the final quote for today. Augustine said, we love the truth when it enlightens us, but we hate the truth when it exposes us. John would say something similar. He would say, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And what we are assuming in running from the light is we're assuming that God doesn't have our best interest at heart, when actually he does. You know, Adam hid in the garden, and who came looking for him? God did because he loved him because he wanted relationship with them. And so, Romans talks about how the truth of God gets suppressed. And I'll just say this. I'll just say, consider this truth as we go throughout this series, and it's this. Becoming a Christian is not a matter of going necessarily just from unbelief to belief. It's actually a matter of going from suppressing the truth to professing the truth. I think we know what's true. The Word of God declares it. Basic human logic points us to this reality. Jesus is the divine logic of God. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.